This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In times of yore, their presence was seen and felt everywhere in the natural world. They spun the moon, made flowers grow, and springs gush forth. They were the natural allies of both animals and humanity. They had the magical powers that created whole peoples and brought forth light. But they were often undermined, under attack, and coveted by powerful figures and forces. And yet, they rose strong and powerful, even when it required great sacrifice. These were the Celtic goddesses and heroines whose stories have been kept alive for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and who have inspired women throughout the ages to seek and take sustenance from the divine feminine, to nurture themselves and their feminine essence in the light cast by these figures, and to honor the balance of nature. Now, Ain Kate Sullivan has brought them to life for this generation, capturing their stories on the pages of two remarkable, award-winning, and highly acclaimed books, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. With a master's and doctorate in literature from Columbia University and King's College in London, Dr. Sullivan actually walked the British Isles and Ireland to reclaim the stories that she has assembled in her Legends of the Grail series, the Grail being defined as the Divine Feminine. We welcome to Common Threads the author of Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales and Legends of the Grail, Dr. Ain Cates Sullivan. Hello, Ain. Hello. Thank you for having me. Certainly. And and congratulations. I neglected to mention that uh, your book, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales, has just won the 2019 Independent Publishers Book Award Gold in Visionary New Age Fiction and the 2019 Silver with Nautilus in Women's Fiction. So that's that's outstanding. I, I am thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Hmm. So let me uh, ask you a few questions. Let's, uh, for now, let's concentrate on Avalon, if we could. Uh, you say in the introduction, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have, uh, uh, I don't have the uh, book right in front of me right now, but you, you say that when you discover where the clay of your body is from, it's easier or it's possible to become more acquainted with the soul. I find that statement uh, something that has wisdom in it, but needs to be parsed out a bit. Tell us what what that means to you. I will, and I'll tell you a little story along with that. So, because it takes a while to find Avalon, I feel. Um, so, I live in Virginia, and our family has a a farm. And the, the story is that the, we, it was given as a land grant to our family in uh, 1668. And so there, there are gravestones there of the men that came over uh, from Northumbria. 
they were the Knights of Northumbria. So I had to, at a certain point in my life, go uh, to Bamberg Castle and track these characters down. So if you can imagine, you're, I'm sitting with my grandmother, who was actually a Sunday school teacher. She was, she was very lovely, very Christian. She, was, she would stir, stir her pot, whatever she was preparing, she would stir it, and she would tell me stories. And as the steam rose, I just absolutely followed her tales to these other worlds, you know. So uh, I was lucky enough to get an overseas research award to King's College London, and and went, and um, I didn't know what it was for. It, it was kind of funny. Uh, it was it was actually I got a, a full ride if I did the work of Lady Gregory. If I if she was a folklorist and a, and a playwright and the patron of W. B. Yeats, and um, they they were very interested in having having somebody do her 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 plays. You know. So I said yes without really even knowing who she was, and first charged off up to up to <laughs> northern England to to find my people. And what I loved about it was that with my feet on the soil in that place, I could imagine, I could dream with the land and imagine what it was like to live in in that time period. And so. I started questing in that way, and that's that's really how the stories came about. They're they're fairly organic, but um, I started going to these sacred sites, and of course to, to Ireland uh, to to collect folklore in the way that Lady Gregory would have. She one of her collections was was Cúlin of Mrehevna, who was this great Irish hero, and in that um, I found a lot of. Uh, Celtic goddesses that were that were incredible. I had never run across these characters who, really, in a lot of in a lot of traditions, women get lost or they are not important or their furniture or, and and here I find this tradition, this Celtic tradition, where the the women were battling in the fields with their men. They were they were druidesses and they were healers and they were. There were warrior women, and they were they were judges. They were, anyway, they 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 served all through the entire culture, and so I I became quite fascinated by them. So let's go back to that statement. Uh, I, that's that's wonderful background, but parse this out just a little bit more. When you discover the clay your body is from, it's easy to become more acquainted with the soul. Are you saying that? Are you encouraging people to take a similar trek to find out physically where people are from? I know that uh, I, I talk to different people and I, I get different responses all the time. Some people are so fascinated about their past and they, when they talk about going to the land of their ancestors, uh, whether it's in Europe or Asia, wherever in the world, they speak of it as pilgrimage. Other people speak of it as going simply as tourists. So uh, I gather you are someone for whom this was not tourism. This was pilgrimage. Well, initially it was, it was an academic folklore collection, and it shifted. Um, it actually shifted back to the Avalon question. It shifted at some point. And it was actually when I was in Somerset in England, and I went to a very holy place called the Chalice Well. And 
at the time, I, I was just entering deep meditation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this place, but it was, it's a place that was, um, came to Tudor Pole in a vision during World War II. He knew he had to protect this place. And in Celtic folklore and in, uh, in the Celtic church, it said that Joseph of Arimathea brought the cup uh, that had the blood of Christ to this place, and that's how the the chalice well got its name. And other people say, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the cup of Christ. It was Mary Magdalene. And then, then other people say it was actually his daughter Sarah. So who knows? There's a lot of <laughs> folklore in the place. What I will say about it, it's it's it is um, potent. It's a potent place. It's a thin place. And so I. I started to have an experience, and, and this is when it will shift from folklore to, oh, I'm feeling a presence. I'm, I'm beginning to feel a presence. And so now we're shifting into pilgrimage, or I call it questing. And, and for me, it became a heroine's quest. So I started to have a, a sense of what it was like to feel the presence of the divine feminine. And I started to connect that to the stories of the grail, the chalice in the, in the Christian sense. And then as you take the stories back, when we go into Celtic folklore, you can go back 10,000 years to the stories of the Kaliach, the old woman of the world, where it becomes a grail and then a cauldron and a cooking pot. So, um, so Avalon... They say there's an entrance to Avalon. Let me just, let me tell you what Avalon is. So so you have to understand at a, when you're when you're working with folklore, the bards knew the the reason people would tell stories is that they knew if if you tell people what to think or how to behave, they probably won't do it. <laughs> but if you tell stories, people can go along with you and they can understand why certain events take place, why certain things happen. And so to enter Avalon, you go to some place like the Chalice Well, which is um, in the old days it was it was called um, the Isle of Glass, and and so you would you could you could go into meditation there, and if you shifted the way, so you're no longer working with your five senses, you're starting to work with your imagination, you start to open up quite often through an apple tree. You walk through an apple tree, and you start to enter the enchanted land. So now we're consciously dreaming. And at that point, if you were lucky, it might be that the priestesses of Avalon would come forward towards you. And you might smell roses, or you might, you might get just feel an incredible amount of love, or you might have a vision, you might have an apparition. And... Some of the some people actually would then travel on a boat to Avalon. And the Irish sense it's Tirnanog or Tirnaban, the land under the wave or the land of women in in um in Somerset, it would be Avalon that you would go to. So it's the Isle of Apples, it's the enchanted Isle of Apples. And um and the the story of journey for the golden apple appears in many, many different traditions, but in the in that particular location it is Avalon, the place where, where it's eternal spring, everyone's healthy, the weather's always beautiful, uh, there's always healing to be found there. Speaking of folklore versus reality, if I read this correctly, 
you were saying that there is a story that uh, your grandfather is buried on the family farm, but you can't guarantee that. Did I read that correctly? Well, these were the grandfathers. Um, I'm still doing a lot of research about it. I know I, I found the Forrester Family Bible, and in the Forrester Family Bible, the our lineage goes back to these to the Foresters of Northumbria, and to the Blantons, and also to the Amos. They all seem to come have come from the, a very similar area. We have a, a vase. That, that was a gift from the, uh, the King of England. It doesn't say who. I'm assuming Charles II. Uh, it might have been Charles I. Um, it, was, it was given to the family, to the Amos family, um, as a, because they were the, the farriers for the king. And so we have these little glimpses, and then I have, through Ancestry.com, have followed um, our family pedigree, and then it have DNA matches. So I've been able to to do the research that way and piece it together. And you, you never know. I mean, the family Bible takes us back to Adam and Eve. Uh, is that true? I don't know. But, but it's, it's very interesting because you can follow, you can follow the, from the Knights of Northumbria, you go up into the, the kings of Scotland. So we were in that particular lineage, the last of the Gaelic kings. So that, that would have been through Robert the Bruce. And then they go back down through Ireland to Nile of the Nine Hostages, who was pretty ferocious, and his wife Mungfind. <laughs> so, so wait, you're 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 saying that this this uh, this person who's buried on the family farm or not is not two generations away from you? You're talking about oh, well, some these these people that were buried there. They're definitely buried there. There's no doubt about that. Um, but they would have come over on a ship called the Safety in 1668. So they're, gosh, what is that? Six generations, mm-hmm. I think. Might be, might be a bit more. Um, so, uh, so obviously, actually, it's interesting. The the family farm is still intact. The legacy we call it the legacy farm, and there are pictures as far back as you can take photography of um, of the. They were tobacco farmers, mostly, that I could track. And then the land grant, you know, in, in the 1600s, there were a lot of land grants given. And they, they would have been, they could have been because they were, had, had done some service to the king and it was a gift. More often than not, um, you would, they would, they would uh, sail the boats. You know, they would be the people who would actually be the sailors. And they would get uh, passengers safely to the United States. And then they would work for three years, and then each family member would be granted 50 acres. And if you think at the time, it was a, a lot of land here. So uh, that's probably how it happened. And <laughs> it is, um, anyway, it's still there. I can walk on it. It's 200 acres, and, it's, and the ph- photography is there. But there are a lot of pieces. It's like having a puzzle, and then there are a few pieces that are missing. So you, some of them you have to imagine in place. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Ayn Cates Sullivan. She is the author of Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales. Let's talk a little bit more about Lady Gregory and the the um, scholastic, the academic pecking order of mythology. Apparently, 
in the the ivory towers a uh, few generations ago if it wasn't greco-roman mythology it didn't it didn't have the cachet irish mythology wasn't in the same uh, category as greco-roman and what what part did lady gregory play in parsing this out that's a really brilliant question because she she really changed that around. So Lady Gregory uh, was nobility, and Anglo-Irish nobility, and was and became very interested in the stories that she was hearing. Now, until I think it was really the Easter Uprising, uh, 1917, if if people told these Gaelic stories or 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 performed any or practices with the old gods and goddesses. You could be k- killed for it. They they weren't respected, and um, Irish was banned. You know there was a there was, at fact at one point there was a genocide on Irish people. So, so Lady Gregory was a nationalist, and she really believed in in Ireland. Um, there's some people that say that there's a root race. There's an I, there's a there's a, a root race that comes out of Ireland. And so she learned Gaelic, and she went around in her pony and trap, and she, and she collected this folklore, which she took to Trinity College. And she said, "Look, it's really, you know Greek and Roman mythology is wonderful, but it doesn't come from this soil. It's not from this land. And we have an, an, a, a wonderful lineage right here, and we need to go around. All of us need to go around and collect these tales and bring them back to life because it will give." the life back to Ireland. We're going to give the life back to our people. So she was really one of the leaders of the Irish literary renaissance. And W.B. Yeats was really fascinated by this, and George Bernard Shaw, and, and John Millington Singh, and a lot of other writers uh, at that time. And so they brought the, the Abbey Theater to life, and they, they did a lot of nationalist plays, and... Um, I think John Mill- Millington Singh was known for Playboy of the Western World, which which was a really famous one, and Yeats wrote Dervergilla. There are many, many, many plays. So she uh, she really uh, was an important person in terms of getting Irish, the Irish Gaelic, not only the language itself, which had almost died out. She she brought it back to life, uh, but also the stories. That luckily, uh, a lot of monks around the time of uh, St. Patrick had written down. Uh, they had there was sort of a little bit of a political agenda with the writing of the tales, but at least they were preserved. And so you you could go back, and the Irish people are lovely when you go to the thin places. Have these rambling houses, and they'll they'll put a little jig on for you and tell you a song and a, tell you a little little tale. And so uh, when Yes, she really. Uh, oh, the other thing that she did that was very important is that she went to the schools and she said, "Look, English is fine, but England's a different country. We need Irish in the schools." And so, when you go to Ireland now, you'll see that that almost all the signs are in Irish and English, and so the language has been preserved and it's actually coming back. It's really lovely. I, I love hearing that whenever uh, older languages uh, sort of dig themselves <laughs> dig themselves out of this grave that was often created by more dominant cultures that uh, it makes me feel good. Uh, so did you have to learn to read and, and speak and uh, write Gaelic uh, for your uh, uh, academic ventures? I had to I had to learn some. It's difficult it's a difficult language. 
<laughs> and I do in my books. If you if you look at words like kaleach and skayach and so forth, and you wonder what this is, and in the back I have a glossary with pronunciation guides, <laughs> so, which does which does help, especially if you're in Wales. The Welsh language is is um, is really it's really interesting. So yeah, that I've I've seen. Uh, yeah, you can't make heads or tails. It, it, coming from a, an English phonetic system to a, a Welsh, and I, I, I assume with Gaelic as, as well, it's, uh, it can be pretty challenging, eh? And the Scottish, Scottish Gaelic, too. And they're, and they're different. And also Cornish. Cornish. Oh. <laughs> They've all been coming back to life again. I, you know, I think this Irish liter- literary renaissance really brought something back to the land. And, and people... Well, I mean, if you're walking on the soil, all of a sudden something like Tirnaban becomes really interesting. Oh, is there really a land under the waves? You know, did did Cahul and Ophrahna actually walk these shores? It does something to restore the soul. And um, there's a lovely there's a lovely tale I would I would love to share with you about the white swan. Have you ever heard it? The the Celtic white swan. It's in your book. Is uh, it not? No. It's in. I think it's in the book I'm working on now. But I'd love to tell you. Because oh no! Go go right ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> I'm working on kings and heroes now. But anyway, in it, there's a lovely Celtic tale, and I think it works here. Is that um, if there's a particular point in your life, and this is quite often the time that we feel that we need to go on a pilgrimage or we need to take a quest. And it's at this time where we're starting to feel like something's missing. Like we don't really, maybe we don't really know what our ancestry is. Or, or maybe, maybe there's just an emptiness inside or just you feel this calling. And so they say this is the time when you can walk to the edge of the river. And you look to see if the white swan comes towards you. And if the magical white swan comes towards you, and if you're lucky, it'll be just as the sun is setting, and you climb on the back of the white swan, and he twists and turns, and he flies to the crack of the, of the morning, of the evening, and the, and the daytime, and as he flies to that crack, he, he becomes a black swan, and you fly through the night, and you gather all the pieces of your soul and your ancestors' souls that have been lost through trauma or grief over periods of time, and you fly all through the night gathering all of your songs and all of the great things that are truly yours, and you come back through just as the sun rises when the crack of the world is there, and you land back into the water, and the swan turns white, and you return whole. That is quite lovely. (laughs) Uh, You know something? And uh, it's funny because when you said, you know, the, the story of the swan... Uh, the reason I thought it was familiar is I was thinking of an Indian tale uh, where the swan is uh, is able to uh, is given a mixture of milk and water. Have you ever heard that one? I'm not familiar with that one, but I love Indian mythology. So yeah, sure. yeah. It, it's just that the the the, the swan was able to. Uh, drink the milk and leave the water. The milk and water were mixed together, but uh, because of the wisdom of the swan, uh, he was able to suck all the the milk out of the container and left all of the water. So, it, mm. yeah, swans are obviously uh, 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 pretty amazing uh, creatures, at least mythologically, if not in yes, reality. And there's some, I guess there's some tale... 
I, I don't. I think this is true in India too. Where I know the, so a lot of the old sites that are in Ireland and Britain, the the old stone circles, are 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 aligned in the way in a way in which Cygnus, the the constellation Cygnus, is somehow activated. And so there's they would tell that tale when when there was a certain alignment because I guess you could go into deep meditation and do a kind of a, in a, the Greek sense of the Sclepian journey where, where you would you would dream yourself back into being. Ah. And you know this whole journey, I, I noticed that you 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 had spent a lot of time in India and um, knew Indian mythology well. Uh, but you know this really started for me in a way when I was in India I went to Mumbai and there was a Durga Puja going on and I was so excited that there was a that there was a culture that was actually celebrating a goddess and I thought my goodness I need I need to go back and see if this is really happening in my in the western world as well <laughs> we only have a couple of of minutes left but in those couple of minutes I'm wondering in the book uh Heroines of Avalon you talk about legends and myths, and you you often use the term legends and myths as, as if they are two separate things. To a lot of people, they would be the same thing. But I, I know people in the academy they they like to use uh, a word economy, and so I'm thinking that in your mind there is a difference between a legend. And a myth, and a folk tale, and a fairy tale. Is there? And if there is, how would you describe one from the other? These are all fine lines. But if you take, for instance, the old book, uh, the Labor Gabala, which is the old history of the invasion of Ireland, for a long time that was considered the history of Ireland. And then over time, it became a legend, and then and then it sort of became this myth. Uh, who knows how real it is now? Now with some of the DNA research they're doing, they think there might be more truth to it than we realized. Um, and then some of the some of the stories of the two Asa de Dunan, which are the tall, beautiful people of Ireland. They were the giants. They were considered the giants, and that they became known as the fairy folk, and and that all became myth. So there's there's a, a crossover in my in my books. What I do is I give the myth as it is traditionally given in in each culture, um, and then I stand in the on the thin place on the place where it, uh, the story arises or one of the places in which the stories arise, and I would write them there. Or I would download them. So I was feeling what it would might be like to be Anya, the solar goddess, or Skyach, the warrior goddess, who who would train heroes to find their magic, and so I write the stories in first person, so that they would then be legends. <laughs> so uh, I think that does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And okay. just in time, <laughs> it's just That's I want to thank you so much, Ayn, for your uh, for your time today, and I hope you'll be able to join us uh, next week, and we can continue this conversation. I would love to. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today has been Ayn Cates Sullivan, and we've been talking about her book, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales. Please join us again next week here on Common Threads. 
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Dr. Ayn Cates Sullivan. She is the author of two books that we're talking about today, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales, and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. With a master's and doctorate in literature from Columbia University and King's College in London, Sullivan actually walked the British Isles and Ireland to reclaim the stories that she has assembled in her Legends of the Grail series, the Grail being defined as the Divine Feminine. And uh, the uh, book, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales, has won the 2019 Independent Publishers Book Award Gold in Visionary New Age Fiction and the 2019 Silver in, with Nautilus in women's fiction. So we welcome, once again, to Common Threads, Ayn Cates Sullivan. Hello, Ayn. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Certainly, certainly. You know, something I didn't mention last week, I, I actually had thought about starting out with this, is that when, when I originally got word of your books, I was a little bit little bit dismissive simply because I thought they might be something other than they were. Um, I thought that it would be, I didn't think it has, it would have the academic rigor that I like when dealing with things like mythology. And, but when I read your, your background, I go, wait a minute here. This is somebody with a little bit of Substance. This isn't somebody who read a couple of Irish novels and and saw one or two movies and decided to go on a vision quest and then all of a sudden write two books. Uh, and so, and and here's the thing: when somebody hears that you won an award for a book in the visionary slash new age fiction, some people might get the impression that it's it's just a lighter if lightweight and it, it your books are not lightweight i think that uh, they they definitely have um the the kind of substance the spiritual substance and the intellectual substance and the historical substance that at least i like i hope other people do as well so i wanted to let you know that so there you go <laughs> well that's good that's good to hear i it, and and actually i started 
I started doing the research for these books 35 years ago. Um, and when I collected the folklore, I really didn't know what to do with it. It was just, it was just entertaining. It was fun. You know, when I was working on my doctorate, I would I would come back with these exciting stories of fairy tales and so forth. And my tutor, who was who was wonderful, this was at King's College London, and she would say that this is fantastic. I know it's very exciting for you, but we're going to stick. We're going to get you through your doctoral program. <laughs> You're going to finish your thesis, and then you can do whatever you want to. And and actually, um, I was worried when I when I handed her the book. Uh, because I thought she, I thought she might dismiss it, but she actually says, "I love this. I absolutely love it." And could I write the intro? So she, she's done a forward to uh, Legends of the Grail. <laughs> no, that, that that is wonderful. Uh, a, a couple of things that uh, we didn't get to last week uh, that were on my mind. One thing I noticed in your book is, uh, or, well, books, uh, plural, is it's a book. Uh, there are books about goddesses. And more often than not, when you read books about mythology, the word god or goddess, when referring to deities, is often used with a a lowercase g. You have chosen uppercase g's, which again, I don't see a lot of, but clearly that was intentional, and I'd love to know your reasoning for promoting them, if you will. Well, well, generally, uh, you you would have. I mean, God in the Christian sense would be capitalized, and then the, in a pagan culture, you would you would have them as lowercase because because the pagan gods and goddesses were demoted, <laughs> and um, and I I really struggled with it for a while because I thought, now why why would I talk about God? And I and I'm really speaking of the goddess as an aspect of a greater intelligence. And what of which everything is a part, and so someone asked me why I didn't capitalize Earth, and why Earth wasn't important, and why Earth had been had been in some cases even demonized. The feminine, if you think about, especially during the Middle Ages, the you know the monks and nuns were trained to hate everything feminine, everything of the Earth. And I thought, well, you know, part of what I need to do, or my intention in this series. Is, is to look at this again and go, you know, maybe we're in a crisis in an eco-side right now because of this very thing, and we need to have a look again at all things feminine. It might be that we really need to put our feet on the soil and walk in these ancient places and just remember how beautiful this earth is and how important each member of this, you know, each, not only the human family and all colors and genders and races of this human family, but also all the animals and plants. And the indigenous cultures, the European indigenous people really understood that, as, as, do, as do the Native Americans here. And so I thought in, in writing this book that was an invitation to start exploring why some of these people might have gone into the cairns. They probably weren't all just passage tombs where people were buried. I think a lot of them were sites where you would go and you would attune to your ancestors. And there were ancient practices that could even serve us now. And it does, it does you know, if you go to a place like Ireland and you have a, an experience with a fairy, you can go into a kind of ontological shock. You think this, these things can't be true. But on the other hand, 
what's more beautiful than going to a, you know, a graveyard or an ancient site and speaking to those that you love and then maybe feeling something in that place? Describe, if you will, the, the foundational religion, or, or should we say religions? Uh, if, if you go back to ancient Ireland, I'm assuming that there were multiple religions that ended up sharing a great deal of information, sharing mythology and all of that, but might have slightly different practices, slightly different beliefs uh, at, at the same time. I'm wondering if there is enough of of a common denominator to talk about ancient Irish religion uh, as as one thing, at least for our purposes here, and uh, try to get a sense of what it was. And was it purely polytheistic? Was it uh, monotheistic? Did it have any monotheistic inclinations? Was it henotheistic? what's, What's your best take on that? So in, in the back of my book, if you really want to, I have a, a, a theology in the back, a her story in the back of the book. And so it takes you back 30, in, in the Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses, and I, it goes back 33,000 years. So you can follow, there is a timeline to follow, because there, if you, if you look at the Laber Gabala, which is the book of the invasions of Ireland, you can see that there, there are several different, there are several different people. And, and they all had different practices. Some of the characters, some of the goddesses, come all the way through. Like, for instance, the Kaliach, the old woman of the world. It's a 10,000-year-old story. And she, she becomes um, the witch over time. But if you take her, she was originally a wiki, which meant wise woman. And if you take her all the way back, she was the one who made sure all the people were fed and that all the dreams of the people were understood. So obviously that's very pre-Christian. It's, it's, so you're, you're looking at an old culture, and many people feel that, that at a certain point there was a goddess culture. That hasn't been proven, but there's a feeling that was the case. And then as you get, as you get to, um, there's another really ancient deity, and it's the last story in Legends of the Grail. You have the Bridget and the Kaliach. So Bridget, it's called the springtime maiden, and the Kaliak is the, the winter, the, the woman of winter. And so there's a handoff between the traditions. So the old woman of the world at, at um, St. Bridget's Day, right, because she survives into Christianity. So the handoff is on around February 1st, and that's when the little snow, the snowdrops blossom. So it's interesting to go to the places and, and track somebody like Bridget, who's a very, very powerful archetype, if you think, of her as just as a huge figure for a minute, a, um, a thought pattern that people have wanted to worship for a very long period of time. And so if you, if you go back far enough, you, you can see her, um, oh gosh, I think it was, it was up until the, the, the Roman invasion in Britain uh, when they put the flame out, I believe. So her flame burnt, like the Vestal Virgin flames, burnt for a very long period of time. And it was recently relit in Kildare. And so now you can take your candle and relight the, the flame of Bridget. She survives in Christianity as the um, midwife of Jesus. And you'll see the same thing with Anya, Anu, Danu, Anya, Anne, St. Anne, who becomes the grandmother of Jesus. Um, so there's, 
there are different places in Ireland where where they were, were worshipped in different ways, and um, you know different regions have different ways of doing this. In the south of Ireland, uh, <laughs> it's actually lovely. There are these two mounds, and they light they have these little rocks on the top, and they light the nipples of Anya uh, or Anna um, to um, to invite in the the fertility of the spring. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, so so time period. So heroines of Avalon and other tales is is a little easier to deal with because we're working from the fifth century, mostly fifth century to the twelfth century. So we're working with the early Celtic Church and in sort of more Christian era. But uh, Legends of the Grail stories of Celtic goddesses is much more ancient, so that would mostly be pre-Christian. So, you know, we were talking about common threads. So one of the things I, was have a, I had a challenge with in, in handling the amount of, this amount of material was <laughs> a massive time frame. And, um, and in a way, I was following a com- common thread, like Anya. And you see over a period of time, depending on what culture you arrive in, you, you get a, a little bit of a different image, and yet in some way they're also the same. And so um, they'll have more or less importance, depending on what the dominant culture is. But I loved um, Anya, well, my namesake, um, A-Y-N-I-A, and you take her a little further back, she's um, A-I-N-E, and before that, she's A-N-U. So she, she actually arrives with the coming of the Tuatha de Dunan, which is several thousand years before Christ. So in that, in that tale, she is a solar goddess. And what I loved about her, because you don't find her story in Greek and Roman mythology, uh, because in Greek and Roman mythology, women are generally moon goddesses. They're going to reflect the light of the masculine, which is wonderful, but in this particular tradition, she's a solar goddess, so she reflects her own light in her own way. So she's a goddess that carries brilliancy. Um, over time, if you follow her into Wales, um, the people that would worship her there, uh, maybe in the form, she can also become dawn. Uh, they would worship her as the one that awakens the glaciosa, or the... Um, the inner light so that you have the direct knowing of God or the goddess, depending on your tradition. And so you have to be very open-minded because you're dancing with, with Christian concepts and pagan concepts and you know, different layers of pagan concepts. And, but if you can, if you can um, have fun with it and, um, and, and do a little jig you know, with some of the bards, uh, there's, some, there's some great characters that emerge there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Professor Ayn Cates Sullivan. We're talking about her books, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales, and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. So, uh, in in uh, speaking of your namesake, uh, uh, Anyu, or Anyi, uh, you say that she was absorbed into Saint Anne, who is the uh, grandmother of Jesus. I'm curious how that would happen. How would a how would an Irish mythological goddess come to be personified 
in a Hebrew, uh, well, yeah, pretty much a a, a Hebrew tradition that, that then evolved into a Greek tradition. And also we're talking about somebody who is historical. Now, I, I can't swear that uh, Jesus's grandmother really was named Anne, uh, but we know he had a grandmother. So, you know, how did that happen? <laughs> so let's, let's think about it practically for a moment. So we, most of us know the legends of King Arthur. And then you, you wonder how, King, how can King Arthur appear in the 5th century and then the 7th century and then the 12th century? How can this happen? Or is it just that his stories come back to life or is he just a myth? So if, if, you, if you go back and really look at it, I, I actually study with um, John Matthews, who's Eng, England's expert on Celtic mythology at Oxford. And I, so I'll go back twice a year, so we have these conversations, and they're very fascinating. And what he's, he's discovered uh, over a period of time is that author's not a person. He's, it's, a, it's a title, like Caesar or Emperor or Lord. Or, so, so the person in a particular age that holds the energy of the hope and reunification, the unity consciousness of a place, and that in this particular place would be Britain. That person that holds that piece would be called author quite often. I mean, you also see, like, for instance, um, King, King Alfred holds a very similar kind of in- energy in the ninth century. But so if we take that same idea so Guinevere also, there would be many, many, many different Guinevere's. Guinevere is a May Queen. Whoever the May Queen is at the time would have the title Guinevere. And Guinevere is very important, just for a little side note, Guinevere is very important because in the Celtic tradition, a man cannot rule as a leader, hero, or king unless his woman deems it so. So he needs the support. Another thing I really love about the Celtic tradition. So what What's fun about Arthurian legend, this is Heroine's Avalon and other tales, this, the, the latest book. We're dealing with early Christian church. And so you have the old stories, these old Welsh stories that are still there, that have, have Aaronrud, the goddess Aaronrud, and, and we had Blutai with, and some of these tales that you'll find in the Mabigion, ancient um, Welsh texts. Um, but you also you also now have Avalon and the stories of the Grail, which are very well-known stories. People tell these stories over and over and over again. In fact, Eleanor of Aquitaine loved the stories in the 12th century so much she had the Welsh bards come and tell them in her in her courts. And so these stories go on and they go on. Why do legends of the Grail stories continue? Because we all want to find our wholeness. In, at the in the um, this early fifth century time. Part of what they were worried about or what was going on in the culture is that these goddesses that were, were worshipped in these different places. And so each spring or well, like you know, the chalice well I was talking about, if you go through Ireland and, and, and Britain, you'll see there are all these holy wells. But before they were Christianized, there were all these local deities that, that were worshipped at these different places, and that became illegal. And if you did that, you got killed. So... Over time, you were not allowed to worship in nature. Um, so these people, uh, and, and actually a lot of the places where they were sacred sites, um, the, the, a church would be built on top, and then the, the holiday would have to shift. So instead of um, Bridges Day or, or Bridges Day, it becomes St. Bridges Day. 
And you see it over and over and over again in this particular uh, tradition. So, um, so it's a wonderful, you can feel the tension. The Romans have left, and so there's chaos. You know, the pagan gods and goddesses come back in, and there's chaos because of that. Christianity comes in. Uh, the, the, the very first book, Legends of the Grail, starts with the story of Caesar. And Caesar is a biblical story. It's the story of um, the, the granddaughter of Noah, Caesar, who was supposedly in the wrong lineage. She was not in the lineage of, of uh, Abel. She was in the lineage of Cain. And so she was not allowed to board the ark. But she was quite magical, and she understood that the wind was blowing, and there was going to be this terrible storm. And so what did she do? She built her own ark, and she she puts her, her friends upon it, 50 friends, the poet Fintan, who's the, great, the first great poet of Ireland, and her herd of horses. And when the winds come and the storm brews, then off she goes into, into the ocean. And it's the goddess Eru who comes and, and grabs, grabs the ship and brings it ashore. And so in the Labra which of course now was history, now is considered myth, Kaser, this, this um, woman from the Middle East, uh, and this biblical woman, is the first person to step foot on, on Ireland. And so this begins the goddess tradition. So, and so you know, we're going to follow these invasions probably for a long time and DNA testing and all sorts of things. But it's very interesting. You mentioned that um, both uh, Bridget and Patrick, the saints, kept the mm. mystical light alive. That, that's what you say in, in your book. But would they not have been opposed to traditional Irish religion? Was there any interplay at, at, at all? Was there any absorption of the Irish myth into that form of Catholicism uh, back then? Or was it a matter of the early Christians coming in, let we assume led by Patrick, unless you tell me different, and uh, th- that all of this was completely squashed or went underground. Well, I, I do talk about it in my book a little bit. Um, uh, the triple goddess, uh, if you go to the ancient cairns and you walk in, you'll see there are all, almost always three rooms and there's a there's an old tradition of, of the triple goddess that's, that's really part of the culture there. When, when St. Patrick comes in, of course, he's, he's not actually from uh, Ireland. He, he was a slave that was taken from Britain. Um, he has a vision. When he's finally freed, he has a vision, and he returns to Ireland as a savior of the people. Now, St. Patrick must have had an incredible amount of light. I would love to meet St. Patrick. You, he's... he's because of St. Patrick and what St. Patrick held, Ireland was in 300 years of a golden age while there was a dark age going on in, Brit- in Britain and Europe. And so he held something that was very special. There were some other things he did that I'm not so crazy about. He, did, he was really interested in, in destroying the goddess traditions, and he was very interested. <laughs> and he, he took over Bamba's, Bamba's Day as his as, as St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, one, you have one tradition, and then the next tradition comes in, and it, it takes over. And, and there, you'll find elements of the old tradition and the new tradition. What he did that I, that I really appreciate is that he made sure that they wrote down the folklore. So at that point, 
the Celtic Church, I think the Celtic Church was eventually banned. I don't know that story so much, but I think eventually the Catholic Church fell out with the Celtic, the Catholic Church and the Celtic Church fell out. But I don't think there was internet, you know, and telephones back then. So St. Patrick was having a grand time in Ireland. And um, they they had a lot of the old folklore. Um, it, it sort of wove into the culture. I mean, the people were still in old the old stone places, and they maybe weren't worshiping by the the spring anymore. But in in this uh, building, but but it's hard to change the 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 mindset of a people. And so if you can. If you can say, ah, you know, yes, um, the Irish people, I, I, I have a great story for you, actually. This is of a, a Munster king. Uh, this is in my husband's lineage. Uh, St. Patrick goes to meet the last of the, the great Sullivan kings, the dark-eyed ones. And he's in um, Cashel in the southwest coast of, of Ireland. And, and so these Gaelic kings, you know, they, they, they're aware of the sun god Lu, and so it's very, they love this idea that there's this savior king, this, this king of light. And so he says to St. Patrick, now we're in about, I think, the 7th century now, so it's a long time ago, but he's, he's there, and St. Patrick has his, his crozier, and, and the king says, to, I really want to have this experience. Can you give me an experience of the Christ? And St. Patrick says, absolutely. So he must have had some lightning in his crozier, you know, some, some kind of, like maybe Shaktipat if you're in India. So he, 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 he puts his, his uh, crozier to the ground very hard, and the earth shakes and the king shakes. And, and the king seems to have, you know, he's, he's having some shaking going on, and, but he's, he's trying to keep himself composed. And then St. Patrick gets ready to move his crozier, which is his staff, and he can't move it because he's realized he's put it through the king's foot. <laughs> <laughs> he finally pulls it out of the king's foot, and he said, why didn't you cry out? Why didn't you say anything? And the king says, I thought that was the initiation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and as we know, in certain cultures, initiations can be brutal. They can. Well, the old Gaelic kings, I'm sure they've had some swords, you know, so. This is true. Uh, Ayn, we are uh, close to being right out of time uh, for this edition of Common Threads, but uh, very quickly, if people are interested in your work, aside from possibly picking up uh, these these two wonderful books, uh, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. Uh, how can people uh, connect with you? Oh, they can go to my website, um, and my first name is spelled A-Y-N, Kate Sullivan. And uh, I have a, a newsletter you can follow. I have an events page. I sometimes take people on quests through Wales or Scotland or Ireland or some wild place, and if that's in alignment with who you are, it can be fun. Um, so yes, you can you can go there, join the newsletter, and and see what the activities are. And uh, and I love hearing from people. If people read the stories and they're touched in some way, or they're bothered by something, or whatever it is, I really enjoy keeping the uh, common thread of the com- of of our, our spiritual quest open. What's important to me is that. They were open, we're exploring, we're wondrous children discovering what God or goddess or the infinite intelligence means for us. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for uh, this week and last week as well. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Uh, with me this week was Ain Kate Sullivan talking about her books, Heroines of Avalon and Other Tales and Legends of the Grail, Stories of Celtic Goddesses. Please join us again next week right here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves.